This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Satyaga Bright, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, we're talking about our discussion picks, a Hawaii story by Hawaii's queen and long live the tribe of fatherless girls. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Well, welcome back listeners to our theme on Pacific Islander and Pacific authors. Yay. And uh, before we jump into that and our, our exciting discussion picks, um, we want to tell you a little bit about our Patreon. So Ruth Ann, who is one of our contributing editors, does a lot of behind the scenes work as far as team communication and organizing newsletter content. And she also works on our Patreon newsletter and she writes that every month. So she expands on different ideas and she has photos of her dog, Ted, who is a Westie and adorable. And he has this whole like old man vibe that I adore. (laughs) And uh, so there's so many great things in our Patreon newsletter. Also with our Patreon, uh, you also have weekly updates called Fur Baby Friday. You have these special Patreon episodes. Uh, we have a book club, a quarterly book club, and uh, of course this newsletter and all sorts of different goodies, discount codes. You learn about what's coming up next and um, you get the themes ahead of time. It's a whole um, lovely community that um, we really enjoy working on. All right. So that's our Patreon. So now on to our discussion picks. Um, Sachi, you have our first one. So my discussion pick for today is Hawaii's Story by Hawaii's Queen by Lily Uo Kalani. And this was recently republished by Mint Editions. And for those of you who might um, have missed our last episode or want a quick refresher, a really fast synopsis of this story is it is the memoir of Hawaii's last queen and sovereign leader before Hawaii was annexed to the United States. And so this memoir discusses major life events um, of Lily Uokalani's life, um, including her eventual imprisonment um, and overthrow of rule by a coalition of American businessmen. And um, Hawaii's annexation to the U.S. occurred the same year that this book was published. And one of the things that I consistently throughout my reading experience was kind of two different sides um, while I was reading. So the first was just awe and fascination about Lily Wokalani's life and Hawaiian culture and how I was able to read it like firsthand from her um, own accounts and her own words um, about this beautiful land and people and culture. And it was 
so just wonderful to to read all of this in her own words. At the same time, uh, certain passages really brought me to anger and frustration sometimes because you also are reading the firsthand account of how Americans stole this land and, you know, her people right from under her. And she couldn't really do anything about it, um, you know, at, at, at after a certain point in time. So you hear this kind of pain and desperation in the words that you that she uses, especially towards the end of the book where she's really pleading for the U.S. not to go through with with annexation, which we now know they later did that same year that this was published, and ultimately what she feared came true. And so it was, for me, there's a lot of highs and lows, especially as an American individual and reading about what our country had had done. Um, you know, it 1898 is not that long ago. It's less than 150 years. And so I feel like when we talk about colonization or or occupying different territories, we think it was forever ago, right? It was so long ago, but it really wasn't. So it it was this very much push and pull that I experienced. Um, Kendra, did you experience something similar while reading this book? Yeah, I, I have not read much on the history of Hawaii uh, much at all. And so reading her account and, and talking about like what happened politically, um, in the kingdom before, um, the annexation of Hawaii and like the lead up of Americans, multiple attempts to try to gain, you know, more and more power and, and eventually success in that. It was just an illustration of how terrible colonialism is and how, you know, America really ha- needs to own up for that. And, just also learning so much about her her life and her experience and you know she you know was very uh, gracious in explaining her culture because she was assuming uh, I believe her reader would be white because she was trying to plead with the United States not to annex Hawaii et cetera et cetera and so yeah it was just really interesting to hear more about how their the rules of succession which was really interesting to read about and how that worked out and um, how, you know, oftentimes ruling families will adopt a child from a different family and it kind of creates bonds within um, their community. And it was just really fascinating in a lot of ways that way too. Right. Even even down to things outside of of um, the sovereign kind of rule and, and the different ways that they had led the country, like she even talks a lot about music because she was a musician herself. And I thought um, the way that she describes music in Hawaii as really being passed amongst each other versus written down and how someone could come up with a melody or a tune and, you know, it just travels kind of like uh, by word of mouth very quickly. And, you know, all of a sudden every, it's like, kind of like, just like, oh, I heard this on the radio and now everybody hears it. It's like, oh yeah, everybody knows the song right now because we've all kind of passed it to each other. And even if they were to write things down, like the way that they think about notes and bars and all this stuff is just so different than how we, you know, from a Western point of view would think about quote unquote, like, music and how it's, it's composed. And so, yeah, she's really generous about, you know, talking about her culture and really trying to appeal to these, you know, I agree, probably white people or Americans who are reading this book. I thought that was a great kind of fascinating aspect and also just really 
becomes a knife in the heart when it comes to the horrible colonialism and the kind of overthrown power that she became because of the United States. And I think, you know, she does a great job of pointing out that, you know, Kingdom of Hawaii is not perfect, but it is important that they have, you know, autonomy and, and different things. And the, and she describes that all so much joy of her culture and, like you said, the music. Also, like she travels um, to the United States and then over to the United Kingdom, um, and she just expresses so much, I don't know, delight at visiting so many new cultures and experiencing that. And she's very gracious about Queen Victoria and like all of this stuff that was just mm-hmm. really interesting to read from her perspective because, I mean, it's been a long time since I read a personal account, uh, you know, nonfiction account from someone mm-hmm. from this time period as well. So I was like, oh, right. The Queen Victoria was alive at this time. Like <laughs> Right. Like, yeah, I felt the same. Like I, one of the bullets that I have here is like, it was just wild to hear someone talk about figures like Grover Cleveland and Queen Victoria who seem, you know, again, like just like very far back in time when it's like, oh no, like that was actually not that long ago. And and she met these people and had kind of firsthand experiences with them. And I learned just a, a lot a lot about Grover Cleveland, which, you know, if you're an American, you hardly ever hear about Grover Cleveland ever. (laughs) And I had no idea that he was such an ally to the Hawaiian people and that he, he blocked annexation when he was in office. And it was, it was when McKinley came into office that shortly after they went through and he, you know, he approved annexation, like, I did not realize all of those dynamics um, between those two presidents and, you know, Lily Wokalani. So it, it was just really very interesting to see that firsthand account of some of these figures that just seem like, you know, footnotes in a textbook sometimes. It also, you know, there's a time where she she lives, I think, for six months in Washington, D.C., and the world definitely kind of seemed like, quote-unquote, smaller (laughs) back then. Like, she gets a seat to President McKinley's inauguration, like, the day of (laughs) or something. Like, they're like, oh, I wish I could have given you more seats if we had more notice. And it's just like, that would not happen right now. (laughs) Like, it might be because because she was, like, a world leader. Um, That's probably part of it and was very well connected through her marriage, but... It it did seem just like a lot easier to do things that were would be unimaginable today. So it it's very unique to be able to read something like this where the time place is so different, but then you also know some of these figures such as, you know, like Grover Cleveland, President McKinley, Queen Victoria, like all these different different um things that really puts in perspective that time and place in, you know, the late 1800s that, you know, I certainly don't (laughs) explore that era as much as I probably should. So this is a great way to do that. I think it's such a great historical document. And of course, this is the history nerd coming out in me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that she's her voice is, is you can you can hear it like she has a distinct writing voice and um, maybe this is because yeah. I've only really read novels from this time period for the most part that it was just such mm-hmm. a delight to read a memoir like this which I think at the time probably would not have been called the word memoir no but that's essentially what it is it's an autobiography of her life and 
um, her experience. And I just felt like, oh, this is this is delightful. I get to read about this time period. But of course, you know, it's also very, very sad because she's writing this, you know, having been removed as ruler of Hawaii right. at, the, at this point. And you kind of, you know that going in from the beginning. And so she explains why she wants to write this book and this story. And then she starts from her childhood and explains like how she was raised and, you know, basically sharing the love of Hawaii with her readers. Right. Yeah. It's, she really highlights that aspect of her childhood and the culture and all the, that, um, she loves about the land and it, it then shifts to the political, intrigue and the coups and like this really, in my mind, very powerful, um, type of plea to the American people not to, to go through with annexation. And so the passage that hit me the most when I was reading this, um, you know, this, this book again was, was ended up being published in 1898. So this is long before, you know, World War II, which, you know, some have noted and what I kind of view as like the tipping point for the U.S. being this like global superpower, right? So this is much before that. There's this quote towards the end of the book that I thought was very telling. Liliuo Kalani just has this very, in my mind, astute prediction. I'll read the quote here. It reads, there is little question but that the United States could become a successful rival of the Europeans in the race for conquest and could create a vast military and naval power if such is its ambition. But is such an ambition laudable? Is such a departure from its established principles patriotic or politic? And this kind of hit me like a ton of bricks because it's it's so true. Like, America broke off from the British people and then ultimately became this giant military force and, you know, colonizer just like them. And it, it does kind of negate some of the antithesis of what our, you know, country was quote unquote founded on. And I know personally as an American, a lot of these things, like the situation with Hawaii, like a lot of the occupation of many islands that the U.S. has, it's not really discussed at all or analyzed or really challenged at all. You know, when I was growing up in and in school and, and even now as an adult, I hardly ever see it, you know, really discussed or, or challenged in the news or anything like that. And it's just awful. Like it just makes, as an American reading this, like it was really devastating to, to read the end of this book and just realize, wow, you know, our country really, really did this horrible thing to this, this ruler and these people that did not absolutely did not want this. It's not like, Hey, we swooped in as a, you know, white savior or whatever and and helped these people. And now it's great. It's like, no, they didn't want this and they were fine without us and just makes you feel awful. And I, it was again, that like push and pull of like, I'm so glad I read this and I learned this, but it also just makes me in the pit of my stomach, you know, feel so awful. Um, and I know that this is one of many stories that is a a really dark mark on our country's history. Yeah, and I really, even though this is written, you know, 120 some years ago, uh, it's a reminder that, you know, colonialism is ongoing and 
it continues to be that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, reading this along with some of our more contemporary reads for this month, you can just see that a factor over the course of time. And it was interesting, you know, Hawaii was made a state in 59. And it was just really, you know, her talking about wanting to maintain, you know, their independence and and preserving their culture and how important that was. And you know the future of Hawaii while you're reading this document. And she doesn't know that future and we do. And so that's something like as a reader, you're like very conscious of, but she she does really share that love and, and centering Hawaii and their story and their, I don't know, the process of growing up and being part of this culture. And she kind of really brings you into that. Um, like we said, in such a generous and, and gracious way um, that I think is, is pretty unique. Yeah, because she didn't have to write that book. No. She didn't have to pretty much educate and, and teach all of these Americans as to why her country should hold value. It should be, hey, we, you know, we don't want you here. And so, you know, goodbye. <laughs> Instead of like, your people overthrew me, imprisoned me. And took away my, you know, leadership that was, you know, in her words, obviously, I'm not 100% sure, you know, what the population felt, but like, what seemed to be, you know, very happy with the sovereign rule, and then sets out and says, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to tell my story, I'm going to share my beautiful culture, and kind of bring out this plea for them not to go through with this. When she absolutely didn't have to after after they treated her awfully, to put all this love and care into this piece of literature is it, it's so sad to me. And but you know, again, I I'm glad that it's out there, and I'm glad that we have our opportunity to read this so we understand our history and understand what happened, knowing what knowing what we know now. But it's it's absolutely from a place that was you know. Probably not even needed or warranted, but she did it anyways. She loves her her country so much, her land. You know, it's important to note that there have been a lot of historians who've written on this document, and there has been some fact checking. You know that you should, mm-hmm. you probably want to be aware of when you're reading this book that historians have done. And you know, obviously, Hawaii was not perfect at the time, and you know, so she probably has like rose-colored glasses a little bit in right. certain areas, particularly being a privileged. <laughs> person of a ruling class, but the point still stands, you know, that she makes in the book that, you know, they were independent, they should have remained independent. And also they were generally pretty kind to the Americans who came and, and were there. She married this white American guy. And so obviously they were pretty friendly with each other and it's like a huge betrayal. And she communicates that betrayal, particularly since she has also loved America through loving her husband mm-hmm. and some of her friends and different things. And and she goes into those details. You get to see her life and follow her life from the different people who took the throne before her and what that process was like and how they, it's generally been done. And she also talks about you know visiting different islands and she has this like reverence and respect for each of the individual islands and their own uniqueness, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I guess, uh, which is a beautiful thing to read as well. 
overall, I, I think we both really enjoyed this work. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to discuss it in more detail um, and highlight it. And I really encourage everyone to, to pick this up. The physical copy uh, that we're promoting is the recent release uh, from Mint Editions, but there's also an audiobook for this. So um, for those who are audiobook lovers like myself and Kendra, um, that is another really great way um, for you to read this book. And uh, some of the pronunciations from Emily Wuzeller, who we love, so don't get me wrong, she's great. Um, pronunciation is probably not the most accurate on the audiobook, um, but you still, still obviously get yeah. the, the, <laughs> the great content and the, the message. Uh, but I do want to put that caveat there for the audiobook um, because that's, that's not 100% probably uh, accurate. It, this is a title that I, I think what I'm trying to get at is that it is a little more accessible and, and it's something that you can get in multiple forms and I really encourage people to pick it up even though like I know there's some folks who are like oh, I'm really not into classics like I'm not really either but I really still enjoyed this and got so much um kind of appreciation after reading it that I definitely think it's worth reading if it even if it's outside of your genre so that was our first discussion pick um Hawaii's Story by Hawaii's Queen by Lily Uokalani and the recent republication is from Mint Editions and Kendra what is your discussion pick that you would like to highlight today so our second discussion pick is Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by Takira Madden. And this is out from Bloomsbury. And this is a memoir uh, about Takira's life living in Boca Raton, Florida, as the child of a Jewish man and a Chinese Native Hawaiian woman. And so she started, her mom started out as her dad's mistress and eventually they did get married, um, but it was really created a tumultuous childhood. And then you kind of go into this and you as the, you know, adult reader realize that, you know, her parents are struggling with addiction and there's lots of different things going on that she as a child kind of finds normal. That's the only existence that she's known, um, but it still has a huge effect on, on her. And so this uh, memoir is written in kind of like a linked essay collection sort of style. And it is pretty, pretty linear in that there's a section at the back that we'll talk about here in a second that is like goes back into her mom's childhood. But for the most part, this book is, you know, pretty straightforward in its timeline. And so I just really love the way that Takira writes her prose. It's phenomenal. I just, their word choice is great. There's so much 90s and early 2000s nostalgia in this book. <laughs> and I listened to the audiobook, which she reads herself, which, um, you know, I reread it for this episode via audio and I had read it print previously. And so each reading, I found something new in it, mm. um, which is always a sign for me of a great book. Absolutely. It's always great when you can get some extra nuggets um, reading it multiple times. Yes, definitely. And so I wanted to talk about a couple of my favorite sections and kind of discuss those a little bit. The first time I ever read Takira's writing was when one of the chapters in this book was published um, in Gornica, and it's called The Feels of Love. Just as a heads up, the next section is going to include a trigger warning for sexual assault, 
Uh, so I will put some timestamps in the show notes of where section one starts, where we discuss this specific chapter, and then where timestamp uh, two starts, which is the second section that we're going to be discussing, um, so that if you are sensitive to that, um, you can make the choices best for you. Um, but I just wanted to let you all know, and that will again be in the show notes. So yes, the first section that we'll be discussing is The Fields of Love, which is that original essay that appeared in Guernica. And that's also the chapter title um, in the book. And it's about um, how uh, Takira was sexually assaulted when she was 12. She describes this, that these very much older guys have done this to her. And so she gives this perspective on what, you know, happens to her at that, in that moment. And she writes the entire chapter in second person, which is a way to distance herself from that story. But it's also her older self talking to her younger self about the situation because the older self knows what's going on and is being contacted by this guy. That you section just really becomes very impactful when you realize that this is something that Takira was doing not only for her present self, but her past self, that that little girl deserved justice in that way. And um, Takira often tells a story how Chanel Miller showed up at one of her book signings and you know, Chanel Miller mentioned that she'd been sexually assaulted and Takira was like, you should write your story. And, <laughs> and she was, of course. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've done, um, I think, either events together or talks or social media posts, something together about this. And being both biracial, multiracial um, women of color are, it's such an important conversation that they're having. And just having these perspectives, I think, is something that we need to talk more about. And this, you know, this book came out shortly after the Me Too movement kind of got underway in, was it 2018? Um, and so this came out in 2019. So there's a lot in just that one chapter of this book, which is, wow. Right. And I, it's really important to highlight because of that that representation and that example of of T. Kara really encouraging Chanel to tell her story as well. And, you know, if you haven't read Chanel Miller's book, uh, Know My Name, definitely read it. It's an incredible, an incredible read. But it is it is really emotionally taxing. I remember still vividly um reading that um, and having to, even though I loved the book, it's so great engrossing and, um, reading that chapter and just having to pause and just kind of put down the book for a second and like really process, um, her, her words in that chapter, because it is, you know, very, very difficult to read, but I do applaud her. And I, I'm sure it was extremely emotionally taxing for her to, to write that piece, um, or, or write that chapter. But I think it is important for us to tell these stories instead of stuffing it down, bottling up and, and making everyone feel like they're alone. Rate, the rate at, at which BIPOC or people of color, um, are sexually assaulted, it is higher. Um, and it, should should really be discussed, and I I th I really commend her and applaud her for including that in this book because it it was probably extremely difficult to do so. Yeah, and like she mentions in the book, you know, this she's not the only girl that these older guys had done this to. 
Um, mm-hmm. And the importance of they found each other later and, and the importance of that and telling each other their stories and, and finding that support and connection there. And so I think she takes you along this journey. But again, it's like this this second person about her young self, and then she also has her older self. Like they're two different people, like the before and the after. Mm. And that was incredibly impactful as well. Yeah, that's very true. I think a lot of us could probably like to reflect back and think about what would I tell our younger self? And, you know, if you could look back and give yourself guidance or, or understanding as to what's happening, because it, it is obviously super confusing, um, as a child. And, and I think sometimes, you know, all of us could probably experience some aspect of childhood where you think every, you know, what you're experiencing is quote unquote normal. It's absolutely not. You feel that in this book, whether it is, this chapter or even aspects of, of how her family dynamics were, how she was raised, I think it's important to kind of reflect back and, and go through that kind of second person exercise. And I think it's really um, very, very unique aspect of this book that I'm, I'm glad that she explored. The second section or our chapter I wanted to mention um, was a section called Kuliana, which this entire section focuses more on Takira's mom's past and the past of her family. And there is a big spoiler that I'm going to dance around a lot in while we talk about this, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> the word kuliana is about a particular idea. And she talks about that there's a place in the afterworld in which all of one's ancestors are waiting I always like this legend best, the idea of this place where all family ties remain solid, intact, where nothing on earth ever mattered. It is the place in which all family members are reunited, and I like to imagine that everyone shows up young, healthy, so much bright life in the face. Uh, She goes on to say later on that page, uh, once the family is reunited, each spirit is encouraged to visit their own idea of home. Home can be in the depths of the sea, in the treetops, and a spirit may choose their grandmother's lap in her rocking chair, the sour smell of malasadas. And the ancient legend describes it as a place of your greatest responsibility. Others define it as returning to one's rightful place or one's greatest duty. The Hawaiian word for this is guliana. And so when she's writing about writing this memoir... She is talking to her cousin, Sarah, about, you know, is it worth it to go through all of this? And her cousin says, your kuleana, she says, this is your kuleana to tell it. And you think about, we just talked about in the previous chapter about the feels of love, right? And how that word connects to a feeling of home, but also responsibility. And in the section, kuleana, there is this whole discovery of her mom's past and um, some things that she didn't know about her mom's past and that connection to her native Hawaiian roots. But also with this memoir as a whole, she is finding home in a way um, that is incredibly important for her as a person. I I really liked this aspect of the book as well um, because I think, um, at, at least for myself, there, you know, throughout my life, there was this kind of 
sometimes embarrassment, um, for being part Asian because you're constantly being made fun of on the playground and all these different things, you know, racism (laughs) in general. Right. So there's this turning point that I had in my life where I really started to embrace my half Japanese heritage or, you know, that part of myself and really started reconnecting with my, my mother in a more meaningful way and my understanding of Japanese culture, trying to learn more about the language and food and things like that, that, you know, it happened gradually over time, but I'm sure there was a moment that, um, you know, shifted that aspect of my life. And you can kind of feel that in, in this chapter as well, at least I did of kind of that aha moment of, of reconnection and embracing a certain aspect of yourself. I feel like, especially being at least biracial myself, like sometimes you feel like you are treading water into different, you know, uh, spaces and you are kind of drifting one way and drifting the other. And sometimes you're trying to paddle to one side and, and leaving behind the other. And when you find that harmony between the two and you connect those two aspects on each side of the coin of that turning point, it's really special. And I like that she highlighted that, that reconnection to her native Hawaiian roots in this chapter, because it reminded me of a time in my life that I went through something similar. She does, like you said, a beautiful job of that and of expressing how growing up she felt like she lived in so many in-between places. She was never enough of one thing or another. Mm -hmm. And she finds a way to express that in such a beautiful and just well-written way And, you know, her act of connecting with her family history is incredible. Uh, There's so much that happens in her life that, you know, really truth is stranger than fiction. And I really have appreciated the way that she wrote her story. And, you know, there is more, obviously, to her story because this was published you know, several years ago and was written, you know, even before that. And so watching her continue to connect with her native Hawaiian roots and also being Chinese and uh, has been really great. Uh, And I think that's something a lot of people, like you said, will be able to relate to reading this book. And she also does a lot of great cooking on her Instagram um, as a side note, if you would like to see her cooking a lot of food, and she also has, <laughs> you know, been pointing out, you know, we need to support um, Asian grocery stores of all different kinds uh, right now with everything going on and anti-Asian violence and, you know, anti-Asian business hatred and racism that's happening right now. And so I, I really appreciate that too, because I think that's a great way to encourage people to support businesses is, you know, here, go make this and you know, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That's how I, uh, you know, frequent my Asian grocery store too, just by trying, um, a lot of different recipes, not only Japanese recipes, but a lot of other, um, recipes from, from Asian countries as well. And it's, you can only get those ingredients, uh, at the Asian market usually. And, um, it's a great way to support the Asian people within the community or, or local area that you live in. Yes. So I will link to Kara's Instagram down below. 
So definitely go check out this memoir and uh, just savor it. it. It's so beautiful. Whether you read it in print or audio, you'll find something beautiful in it. So that is Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by Takira Madden, and that's out from Bloomsbury. So for our next segment, we have something very special for you. I think we've only done this once before, but we asked one of our discussion pick authors to come on and to recommend some books as one of the picks was originally published in the late 1800s. Um, I, I think the obvious answer is that today we have uh, Takira Madden with us and she is going to share a couple of books by Native Hawaiian authors that she has really connected with. And it was really delightful to be able to talk to Takira about these books. Uh, so without further ado, here are her recommendations. Hi, my name is Tikira Mahayalani Madden. I am a Chinese Jewish Kanaka Maoli Hapahaoli writer. The first book I've chosen today is the story collection This is Paradise by Christiana Kahakavila. This is Paradise is a story collection. Um, from many different points of view, and it explores contemporary Hawaii. This is Paradise is one of those books where I often say that if you have a book that feels destined for you in some way, for me, that is, that is the ultimate. That is the ultimate desire for me as a reader and as a writer in my life. When a book finds you or a writer finds you at the, the perfect moment in your life. And that was this book for me. I went away to Hedgebrook a few years back, uh, a writer's residency off of the state of Washington. And when I was there, I guess, I guess, I think Christiana or Christiana Cajalcavila um, had just left the residency or had left in the months prior. So she had left this book there as we as we do, if you have a book, you can often leave a copy. And it just found me in the library one day. And at that, at that specific moment in my life, when I was thinking about my heritage and reconnection as I was writing um, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls and writing the Hawaii section of my book, um, this book was just right there in the library of someone who had just left. And it felt like just the perfect the perfect moment to find that voice and to find this person. I've never met her. I've never spoken to this author. I hope one day I will. I felt when I read these stories as if I had permission as a Hapahali person, as a Kanaka Maoli person who was born and raised in the mainland, that I could write about the islands, that I could write about my family and in fact, it is a responsibility, or as Hawaiians would say, my kuleana to do so. Yeah, that's why I chose this book. And I know, I know from learning a little bit about Christiana's life, she was born in California. She's also a diasporic um, Kanaka Maoli person and a Hapa person. I think she has Norwegian and German blood as well. And I know she went to Princeton and then Michigan. And she, like me, found herself in institutions were mostly centered on the white American experience, um, not the Pacific experience. And she has pointed out in, in a lecture you can find online that even when we look at a map, when we learn the map of the world, 
it's always focused on the Atlantic and North America. And it's not until you pivot that map and actually look at the expanse of the Pacific that you realize this really is kind of the greatest, largest nation in the world. And our, the Pacific islands are just literally severed in half. Um, and so learning from her, not only from these stories um, and the stories she collected here and the points of view she collected here across the islands and the archipelago, but also listening to her talk about her discovery of her Pacific roots and finding her own permissions and her own identity through reading Pacific writers um, across the diaspora allowed me to feel like it's not too late um, to find those stories of my own and to allow myself those same permissions. I know Christiana, the writer, is interested in this concept of mo'olelo, um, which I wrote this down it covers secession, language, speech, storytelling, journal, legend, yarn, research, and the secession of a talk. And I think that that idea of storytelling tapestry seems to fit this book perfectly. It feels like such a chorus. Um, and I think that's something that these, that both of my books actually have in common. Um, but this, this chorus of character, not just from a single narrator, but from the housekeepers of the island and the Hawaiian businesswomen and the surfers of the island and the locals and just really reversing or subverting that gaze that we're used to, the colonial gaze on the islands and, and the people of Hawaii. And that's what makes this so special. From page one, um, we're introduced to the subverted gaze. And I think for me, this book just holds you from page one, paragraph one. The book is... This is Paradise Stories by Christiana Kahakawila. The second book I've chosen today is Shark Dialogues, a novel by Kiana Davenport. Shark Dialogues is an epic novel. It spans a century. It begins in, I think, 1834. And it is related to This is Paradise, truly a tapestry of perspective, mythology, family story, a journey through uh, man-made destruction, as well as natural destruction and disaster. And it weaves together several stories. It's actually a very difficult <laughs> book to describe because of how much is going on. Um, but I can tell you it is epic. And beyond anything else, beyond the story of the island and the story of this family, beyond the central figure of Pono in the book with her four mixed race Hapa granddaughters is the most lush and beautiful language I think I've ever read. <laughs> the language is, is its own character. It's a mix of pigeon. It's, it has high lyricism. It has the most beautiful descriptions and point of view shifts even mid-sentence and mid-paragraph and run-on sentence. I think it's stylistically just so ambitious and so gorgeously done and unlike anything I've ever read before. But it's so hard to describe the language of this book without hearing it <laughs> and how each sound is its own story. So in the very beginning, chapter one, we get this run-on sentence Pono loved the spectacle, Paniolo, the only men left with true Hawaiian mana. And then this run on. 
Those summers would always be mingled in Jess's memory with horse sweat, man sweat, stench of furious bulls manure and fear, shave ice, wet hay, pineapple spears, a circus smell, excitement, expectation as they approach the grounds, flying dust of bull rings catching in her eyes, areoling fence posts, the bands, the paniolo turning everything into a dream, and clouds warming up the crowds, and hula girls and bands, then paniolo riding out resplendent on their mounts, waving to the crowds, to her, then disappearing minutes later, exploding back into the ring, bareback on wild broncos, Jess screaming, huddling on wooden grandstand benches in the asylum of Pono's wings, horrified as blood-splattered azure, plush of embroidered cowboy shirts, and bright pink and purple chaps, and golden muscular Hawaiian stomachs, Slashed open guts like blue oysters, Rossi urchins spilling out so that rodeos in Puerto Rican Kachi Kachi bands smell of blood rawhide and saddles wrenched into heavy smell of sugar cane, sweet gardenia, smell of Kona snow, white blossoms of the coffee trees in her grandmother's fields, her youth. And I think that is such an example of just the ecstatic, ecstatic, like expansiveness and beauty of every word um, just sidesteps your expectations of what language can do and where language can go. The use of color in both of these books, the use of rhythm and meter where you least expect it, and just this spiraling lush description of not only landscape but of feeling makes it so special. Shark Dialogues is a book that runs in many Hawaiian families. Many people read this book. And it was passed down to me when I was in maybe middle or high school. The book was published in 1994. And I tried to read this when I was maybe 15 years old. And I think just most of it went over my head. I didn't feel, I didn't feel as deeply connected to my family and my kuleana as I do now of understanding the history. I mean, this is a big, it's a big, epic, dense book. The language is very lush. It's a dense book. Um, but I tried. I did my best um, because it was passed down to me from my great-grandmother. And I've always loved to read. But I think I let most of it wash over me. I don't, I don't think I was ready for that book in the same way I talked about with This is Paradise, how it was exactly the moment of readiness um, that I found it. I don't think I was ready at 15 years old to read Shark Dialogues. But now opening it recently, I was thinking, I was invited to read for an APIA uh, reading night and I had this on my shelf and I thought I should revisit Shark Dialogues. It's time. And I was, I opened it and I just, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I couldn't believe the language, the prose, the stories that immediately just had me. I mean, I was very literally crying at the table. Um, at the sheer beauty of it um, and the sheer feeling of home and my family. Um, my great-grandmother who gave me this book is no longer with us. And it felt like, wow, I need to spend time with this now as an adult and as a writer and as a reader who's not only interested in plot the way I may have been when I was 15, but interested in style, um, interested in dialect, interested in uh, the pigeon that's so elegantly used in this book. So I'm giving it another try, starting it again, 
And I'm really excited to revisit a new book. I think every time we read and reread a book, we can have a completely new experience with it. And that's maybe the best part. If you're up for the challenge of reading an epic, maybe 600-page book, uh, please read it with me. Tell me what you think. Um, Share passages with me. It's one of those books you will want to read aloud to anyone nearby and say, can you believe the construction of this sentence or this passage? There's a description of fish. I think the fish are mating in the water. And then when the fish jump out of the water, when they leap out of the water, there's an interruption because I'm really interested in sentence and paragraph construction. There's an interruption of the image that literally says, which became the, a young boy's memory. Like moments become memories mid-moment, if that makes sense. The management of time, perspective, and the way Davenport does it in the language feels like a magic trick. And Hawaiian mythology is so beautifully woven into this book as well. And I'm just so excited and I feel so grateful to return to this book um, and just have such a new perspective and new appreciation for what she's built here, which in just a few pages, I think, if you gave this book a shot, you would see exactly what I'm talking about, exactly the kind of language that I'm talking about. Even on the book right here, it says compares with Toni Morrison. And I think there's that same care for lyricism and sonics um, that it just feels like music, music to the veins, I think. Shark Dialogues, a novel by Kiana Davenport. You know, as you've so beautifully articulated already in the podcast, um, Pacific Island voices are so often missed in these lists. Um, They're not as widely accessible, it's true, but it's not that Pacific Islander people have not been writing, it's that their stories may have not been platformed in traditional ways before now. So it feels like an honor and a privilege to read these stories and the poems of these writers. I think there's a a misconception that maybe those of the Pacific or indigenous Indigenous people only have oral storytelling. That's just one part of our storytelling. There are certainly written storytelling as well. Um, and these books are here. So it feels feels like a responsibility to me to read not only in a decolonial way of these islands and of these peoples, but also, you know, the sheer, again, language beyond the story, the language, the reverence of the natural world, the reverence of the Pacific and the people who inhabit these islands um, in in the the largest nation in the world, as the Pele Hau Alpha would say. I guess I just feel that Pacific Islander writers have been largely overlooked, um, not only by mainlanders, but my me myself as a Hapahali writer. Um, I've always looked in other directions for what had been considered high literature when really the literature was right in front of me all along. So many thanks to Tikira for recommending those books to us. I don't know about you, but I have already ordered them and they have arrived and I'm very excited about reading them. Uh, But those are our discussion picks. Uh, So uh, Sachi, do you have any further reading or resources for us? 
Yeah, so the other book that I wanted to give um, a kind of shout out to for this month's theme is Redefining Realness by Janet Mock. And I'm sure many people have heard of um, Janet Mock. She is a an advocate for the trans community. And um, this is her first book, her memoir. And she is a mixed race individual. And uh, part of her uh, heritage uh, is that she is native Hawaiian on her mother's side. And um, she's born in Honolulu and spent part of her childhood in Hawaii. I think it's a great, you know, book to highlight for many different reasons. And I, this is one of the first books that I read a, a memoir or firsthand nonfiction account, um, from a trans woman. And it was extremely powerful and very moving uh, for me. So I, I really wanted to highlight that today, as well as the blog post that I mentioned at our last episode from We Need Diverse Books, um, titled Resources for Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which has a lot of different lists and you know compilation of, of different titles as well as links to various Pacifica authors um, and publishers. And so I wanted to, to plug that one again uh, for those who are looking for further reading um, based off this theme because the books that we picked are just the tip of the iceberg. Kendra, what is your further reading? So I'm actually going to recommend a blog post from The Quiet Pond. So you may know of that because our one of our contributing editors, Joss, is a co-blogger there. One of her co-bloggers wrote a post called Book Recommendations, Happy Asian Pacific Heritage Month, Books by Maori and Pacifica Authors. And this covers a lot of Pacific Islander and Pacifica authors um, for you to check out. And also just gives you resources in general, which is pretty great. Um, this list includes uh, Frangipani, which we talked about last episode, but also Black Marks on the White Page, which is something Jacqueline featured. I think during our anthology month, I can't really remember, but it is one of, of Jacqueline's recent favorites. So definitely go check out that blog post, which I will link down in the show notes, along with everything else we've mentioned today. So you can go check those out. Well, that's it for our theme on Pacifica and Pacifica Islander authors. Uh, always feel free to shoot us recommendations at hello at readingwomenpodcast.com or just DM us on social media. That works too. But in the meantime, uh, Sachi, where can people find you about the internet? You can find me mainly on Instagram at Sachi Reads. And everyone can find me at KD Winchester. It's K's and Kite, D is in Dylan Winchester. And that's our show. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester, with music by Mickey Saito and Isaac Green. Join us next time when Kendra and Jacqueline talk about books with protagonists over 50. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.